Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your amazing goodness. We are humbled by your amazing love that you would take wretched sinners such as ourselves to glorify your great name. May we truly be moldable clay in your hands and allow you to show your creation just how much you love her. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my brothers that are serving in the role of elders for your church and the calling that you have given them to lead this local body with care and wisdom. I thank you for the deacons that you have gifted to this body who serve tirelessly to be your tangible hands and feet to this local body. May you continue to strengthen our leaders, protect them from the fiery darts of the enemy as they continue to serve so faithfully. I confess, Lord Jesus, that I have allowed the troubles of this world to draw my focus and energy away from you and your promises to me. For any in this body that have had hard weeks, I ask that you would remind us of your goodness. May we place our focus on you and realize that even though the battle is hard, you have won the war and are our rightful conquering king. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your global church. We pray for all our sister churches that are meeting today to proclaim your gospel, not just here in the Willamette Valley, but to the ends of the earth. We pray for the branch and the elder that is teaching this morning. May the people of that church have a renewed spirit and desire to follow you like never before. We pray for our brother Marcel and his church in Ouagadougou. I miss my brother, Lord, and I look forward to the day that we can praise your great name for the rest of eternity. Let our brothers and sisters in Africa know that they are such an encouragement to us and that they are truly considered family by this body. As we open your holy word this morning, I pray that you will be with my brother Nick. We ask that any words that are not of you would simply fade away and that you would see and that we would see today as your amazing love uh, faithfully fulfilled in the words of the Apostle Paul. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. What a wonderful day. The sun is out. The uh, weather is brisk. I enjoy that a little bit. Uh, and we're going to enjoy an agape meal after the service is done. So it is a wonderful day to be here with you all as we now get to feast upon God's Word. If you have a Bible or a uh, notebook, please open to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is where we will find ourselves this morning. When you think of a job well done, what comes to mind? For me, it reminds me of my childhood. My brother and I mowed lawns through high school. At one point, we had 16 lawns in one week that we were responsible for. I loved, and still do, the smell of fresh grass, the clean, straight lines that the mower left behind at the end of a job, and we could look back and see how good of a job we did. It was visible, it was tangible. And what was even more appreciated was when one of the owners of the homes would compliment our work. A job well done is a satisfying thing. It's a satisfying reward for the effort that one has exerted. A job well done is a dream that many people possess. Recently, though, many people have been leaving their jobs, pursuing something deeper and more internally satisfying, tired of slaving away for the man, right? In, in 2021, nearly 50 million people left their jobs. 
One of the questions that these people were asked and was asking is, was working and is working 40 hours a week for a paycheck worth it? People began to realize that spending much of their time, uh, of their lives to earn money, isn't as satisfying as maybe they had idealized at one point or another. Maybe it wasn't as satisfying as their parents had told them, right? If you just do a job and it's well done, it's very satisfying. Businesses now are working to figure out how to retain employees in other ways. What people want as much as a job well done is a healthy balance between work and life. And so as the workforce continues to have younger people join, the goal has shifted. Instead of working for a job well done and and the approval of an employer, the younger generation desires to have a balanced life that they can enjoy their family and friends and make an income. Maybe this describes you. Maybe you enjoy having a healthy balance in your life. Or maybe it doesn't describe you. Maybe you find yourself enjoying the amount of work that you put in. For the Christian, we live in the reality of an already but not yet. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is already here, but it's not yet fully realized. So we work not only in the physical realm where we have an employer who asks us then to accomplish their purposes with the promise of a monetary reward, but we also serve in the kingdom of God. In faithfulness, we work and labor in the way that God has given for us and for his purposes that he alone knows. So today we come to Colossians 1, 24 through 29, and Paul himself was given a job by God. What was his calling? Well, in our verses this morning, he is going to give us a view of the purposes of his work. The title of this sermon is Paul's Labor for the Church. Paul's Labor for the Church. Let's together look at verses 24 through 29. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul has just finished his prayer for the believers there in Colossae. And in our verses covered last week, Paul laid out the preeminence of Jesus Christ. He is the supreme God of the universe. It is through him and by him and for him that all things hold together and find their meaning. 
And in verse 23 of chapter 1, Paul tells the reader that he is a minister of the gospel. The news that Paul has just delivered to the church is the reason he is a messenger. In our verses this morning, he is giving the reader a synopsis of what his job actually entails, what it is that he is to be about. He highlights his selfless sacrifice and difficulty and the message that he carries and the the faithful work that God has tasked him with. Now, Paul is writing from a unique perspective. His unique perspective is that he is an apostle. That means that he was commissioned by God, or actually by Jesus, face-to-face with the job to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we heard a synopsis of that uh, earlier in the scripture reading. An apostle was one who came face-to-face with Jesus Christ. In the early days of the church, Paul's work was foundational in bringing the good news of Jesus to every corner of the earth. And so in that respect, his job was very unique. It wasn't until his death in Rome at the hands of the emperor that, that he had accomplished the purposes that God had given to him. Paul was a true minister of the gospel. He laid his life down for its promotion. Paul's life was in service of this good news. So as part of Paul's job description, we see that ministers of the gospel face difficulty. Ministers of the gospel face difficulty. Let's look at 24 and 25, uh, verses 24 and 25 again. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul is clear that the minister of the gospel, or a minister of the gospel, is one who faces difficulty. This is what he, he labels himself here in these verses as, one who, a minister who does this. He faces difficulty. Before we take a look at the difficulties that he faces, or one who carries the gospel faces, there's several questions in this text that I feel like we need to deal with. The first is a, large, a rather large one uh, here in verses, or verse 24. Paul says that his sufferings on behalf of the church is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, you don't have to be very good at Christology to realize that at face value, that raises some questions. Paul is, appears to be saying that Jesus' afflictions weren't actually enough and that he is filling up what is lacking. Paul had to suffer so that the difference between Christ's sufferings and and what was actually needed could be made up. That's what it appears to be saying. But as good readers of Scripture, we know that this can't just be true. Paul himself had just finished a section of writing and proclaiming the supremacy of Jesus. There is no way that his sufferings were lacking anything. So so what could Paul actually mean? Somehow, Paul's sufferings were accomplishing what Christ's could not. What does this mean? Well, 
Romanian pastor, Joseph Son, uh, who pastored in communist Russia, explains the verse this way, that, that the suffering is not for propitiation, but for propagation. So propitiation is a, a theological word that refers to Christ's blood on the cross, his shed blood. So what Paul is telling the church is that Jesus' blood was sufficient for forgiveness of sins, but what is accomplished through the suffering of Paul is promotion or propagation of the gospel. Through the suffering of Paul, the church in Colossae is being built up in a way that Christ's suffering was not building it up. Paul was promoting the gospel in a way that Christ did not. The propitiation for, of Jesus' of Jesus's death was good, was 100%. Through his suffering, somehow, in some way, the Colossian church was the beneficiary of Paul's suffering. But not only them, but also us. See, Paul uses the generic word of ecclesia to describe the church, to, to communicate that this is the Lord's church. This is Jesus' church that is being built up through his sufferings. So this leads us kind of to another question. Is this suffering unique to Paul as an apostle? Is our suffering, can our suffering be used in the same way as Paul's, or is this unique to his apostolic office? I mean, in the next verse, Paul even refers to himself as a minister of the gospel. Since we are reading in our English version, we um, lose what the Greek captures. In the Greek, the word that Paul uses for minister is diakonos, which you might be more familiar with as we transliterate into deacon. Literally means servant. So Paul is a servant of the gospel. He is serving what Jesus Christ has given to him. So as the gospel is spread through the entire world, Paul's suffering was accomplishing the promotion of the gospel at a, to a level that Jesus' didn't. And as a servant of the gospel, we too are included in that because we ourselves are servants of what God has given to us. He captures this even further in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This idea of suffering, of persecution, is something that is common and expected among the people of Jesus. It wasn't just that Paul was an apostle that he suffered. No, it was that he was a Christian, that he was a minister, a servant of the gospel. Paul's suffering was for the purpose of building up the church. This was his job. This was his duty. And in doing so, at the end of verse 25 of Colossians, it was making God's word fully known. Suffering then for Paul built the church up, and it revealed God's word. It is his selfless suffering that is a gift given to him by God. And in fact, Paul says that he rejoices in the suffering that he endures. It was clear, clear that Paul probably wasn't an American 
right? Where we like it nice and easy. I would argue, too, that it's clear that Paul had a very clear understanding that suffering was a grace given to him. It was a gift that God had bestowed upon him as he was then able to participate in the building up of the entire body, right? Suffering as a grace, suffering as a gift, because why? Because it builds up the church. And we, here today, continue to be the beneficiaries of his labors, the, the ripple effects of his willingness to lay aside the demands of the flesh and this world have built up the entire church of God. And here we are continuing to be built up by them this morning. This is the path of suffering. Through suffering, the world was saved, and it is through suffering that the church was built and is being built. Christian, do you realize this? That, that when you suffer, it is building up the church? When you suffer, it is a reason to rejoice? It is a gift that God has given to you? Now, I, I don't want to make suffering something unattainable, right? Suffering doesn't have to mean imprisonment or torture or death. It did in the context of Paul, in the, and in the context of uh, the early church, and even in other contexts in the, uh, the world today. It means that. But why is suffering actually suffering? What makes suffering something that we can relate with? Right? How can we define suffering and still be faithful to Scripture? Well, there isn't a clear definition of suffering in Scripture uh, that says, hey, here's exactly what suffering is. But suffering is, it appears in Scripture, a willingness that confirms to suffer, that confirms your profession of faith and hope in the cross. Suffering is a, a willingness that confirms your profession of faith and hope in the cross. See, biblical suffering can end if the sufferer just gives up what they hold most dear. In Paul's case, it was the gospel and the church. Our lives may not have the same impact that Paul's did in the history of the church, right? We may not be remembered as greatly as Paul. But we don't need to be an apostle to be counted as a servant of the gospel or even to suffer for the benefit of the church. See, we suffer when we are willing to give up what we love most. It is the suffering of, of giving up your life to serve the church for the church's benefit, to host a community group or to lead a discipleship group. Right? You don't need to see yourself as a great host or a great leader or feel like you have much to offer, but you decide to reach out and, 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 and host and, and be a good host and a good leader. This is giving up of yourself. You are dying to what you feel is most comfortable, and suffering is what endures, ensues. Thoughts of in inadequacy, fears of judgment and questions about maybe your food or your children's behavior roll around in your head. The beauty that is that, the, that through your suffering, 
the church is being built up. See, being hospitable, hosting groups, is about opening your home up. And it isn't about your performance, but it's about your love that is expressed through sacrificially giving of yourself, of your time and your space to care and to love someone else. Suffering for the sake of the church can look like volunteering. Maybe volunteering in a way that you don't feel like you're that good at, but people have affirmed you're, you are actually decent at helping with kids. This, this, uh, this suffering puts us outside of our comfort zone, right? And it makes life harder. But in love, we endure. Suffering for uh, the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, is a foreign concept in our culture. And I would argue that suffering in this way is best began, begun when you are in your youth. One of the hardest transitions that one makes is uh, being from a, a young adult to and, and growing up into adulthood. This growing is put into turbo speed when you get married or when you have children. Now, if you look around at this church, we are a young church, right? If you look through the membership directory, you will see more young families than any other age demographic. So if you find yourself on the younger side of life, I would challenge you, don't waste it. Do not waste it. To be a Christian is to embrace suffering. Embrace the reality that Christ is going to call you to die to your selfishness. To die to an easy way of life. And to lay your life down an act of love for the good of his people. This isn't now to earn any merit from God, right? We don't earn any extra righteousness from him, but we get to participate with him in the grand plan of building up his body. So don't look at the church just and only as a place of deep relationships and fellowship and camaraderie. It is those things. But look at the church as a place to practice Loving others sacrificially. A place of laying your life down for someone else. To borrow and maybe twist the famous saying, ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. How can I willingly give up my life so that the gospel is proclaimed? Now, don't fall into this social trap that we ought to um, only be about us and about ourselves. No, but embrace others. Welcome them in. Be a part of the community of God. If you are here and you are a Christian, you have been given a gift from God. He has given you as a servant, as a minister of the gospel to the church to give up your life for the good of those around you. If the Spirit is alive in you, no longer are you alienated from the people of God, but you have been brought in and are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest joy that a Christian can know is knowing that they are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Your hardships in life, the, the difficulty that you're enduring isn't pointless. There's a purpose to it. 
God has given you a purpose. Through our faithful efforts, that is how God builds his body. Peter also reminds us of this truth, that we ought to rejoice in suffering in 1 Peter 4, 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Sufferings are reasons to rejoice, no matter how small, as they remind us of the suffering of Jesus. And it is that his suffering that built the church, and it is through ours that the gospel is promoted. God's people are to be about the work of God. We are to be about the building up of the church where God lives. This was Paul's calling, and it is our job as well. So how has this been revealed? How has, this, uh, how has God gone about this? Well, the job of a minister is to faithfully proclaim the gospel, and that leads us to the second point. We are ministers. Ministers of the gospel reveal the mystery. Verses 26 and 27. Let's read that together. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul, having been tasked as a servant with the good news, is now stewarding this responsibility as God is making the word fully known. And he says here in verse 26 that this mystery is now revealed to the saints. When we read this word mystery in the New Testament, uh, we ought not think of uh, that this is a puzzle that has yet to been, be solved, right? My family enjoys the National Treasure movies where Nicolas Cage, arguably one of the greatest actors of all time, <laughs> attempts to decode secrets from America's past. I'm glad you all got that sarcasm. <laughs> Sorry if you love that actor. but He uh, goes on uh, through the movies and discovers treasures and secrets all while solving puzzles. Now, this is not the type of mystery that uh, is referred to here in the New Testament. This mystery doesn't require a decoder ring or a treasure map. The mystery is Jesus Christ, and he has been revealed. He has been made known. As verse 27 says, that it is specifically, he's been revealed to those that God chose to make known the riches of his glory. So God has revealed Jesus to those whom he has chosen to reveal Jesus to. And part of this revelation, part of this wonderful mystery that's been revealed is that the Gentiles, you and me, have been brought into the family of God. The people of God are no longer an ethnic nation, but a people from every group, every tribe, every tongue that he has revealed himself to. And for that, we can be grateful. Paul echoes this same, uh, this same 
word here in Romans 16, 25 through 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings that has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Jesus Christ is the revelation of the mystery. He is what the minister of the gospel or a minister of the gospel proclaims. And it was through the proclamation and reading of God's word that the world will come to know who Jesus is. How does one come to know Jesus? Through God's word. Through God proclaiming who Christ is. Here in Romans verse 26, and then also back in Colossians 1 verse 27, both are clear. Another key part of the mystery is Christ in you. The mystery is Jesus revealed, but it's also Jesus inside of you. The hope of the good news is that Jesus Christ lives in you. You are no longer your own person. He possesses you. You're not just a physical individual. You have been united into Christ, and he has been united into you. This mystery has been revealed to us. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the supreme, preeminent being of the universe, as Paul just got done describing, lives in you. Jesus Christ lives in you individually, but he also lives in you corporately. He is part of the church. This is, the, this is part of the mystery. Along with this new identity, right? We are no longer our own. We have a new identity. We also have this hope of eternity that Paul talks about, or the hope of glory, as we see at the end of verse 27. Now, through church history, many have tried to capture this, this uh, hope that we have. And it's asked even in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? To which the answer is that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Christ in you means that you belong to him, that you are his, and that is the hope of eternal life. And so no matter what health issues you are dealing with or pain racks your body, no matter what your child says about you or what addiction has haunted you in your past, no matter what temptation you deal with on a regular basis, you, if you are a Christian, are in Christ. You are alive and have taken on a new identity, and that identity is a child of the King. He has made you new. This is what it means to be a Christian. To, to be a Christian isn't dependent on you or your goodness. It isn't dependent on you doing something uh, religiously. You are a Christian because Jesus Christ lives in you. Is a popular thought 
an easy, easy, an easy thought to um, participate in, that a Christian is some, someone who does certain things, right? They go to church, they pray, they read the Bible, they love America, they vote Republican. Now, it might be that you do those things as a Christian, right? Christians ought to practice good spiritual habits. But that isn't what makes a Christian a Christian. A Christian is one who has put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And so to become a Christian doesn't require magic words or special prayers. All one must do is to believe. And that belief comes from faith. So if you have that faith, and you're sitting there realizing, oh, I actually believe that, I would encourage you to talk to somebody, to find one of the elders of this church, or find, find some, the person that brought you here today, and talk about what that faith actually looks like practiced in your life. Or if you have any questions about anything that you have heard this morning, I would encourage you to ask them, to ask those questions Talk to somebody about who Jesus Christ says he is and truly is. For through Jesus Christ, you too can experience the riches and the hope of glory. <clears throat> if you are a Christian or at least proclaim to be one, what would it look like if you began to realize this truth more and more? The truth that you are a new creation, that you have Christ in you. How would it affect your personal relationships? How would it affect your marriage? Relationships with your children? How would it affect your work relationships? What if you realized more and more that being a Christian, being like Christ, meant that you had to suffer like him in all of those areas? Well, how would your membership even here at Mission be affected if we realized on a deeper level we have Christ in us and are called to be like him? A great indicator of whether or not you are in Christ and he is in you is the question is, is he my only hope? Is, is he the hope and joy of my life? Or do I desire and hope something else? Right? Have, have I put my hope in my children? Have you put your hope in your children? Have, have you put your hope in your job and, and maybe you're a job well done? Have you put your hope in your dating relationship, in your marriage? If the things of your life start slowly disappearing and God removes them one by one, would you still pursue the things of Christ? Then ask the question once you realize, oh man, I, I may be lacking some of this. Are you willing to give up what is holding you back? Are you willing to give up what is holding you back from recognizing and living like Christ is in you? to give up the bitterness, to give up the anger, to give up that temptation, that, that addiction. So if you are sitting here 
and desiring to know more about Jesus than good. But if you are finding that you don't desire to give anything up, then it could be that you truly aren't a Christian. For there are many that say they are Christians, but in reality, the Spirit of God is not alive in them because they love the things of this world more than they love Jesus. Now, the reality is, is that's work, and that is suffering. And we don't do this on our own. For the purpose of suffering, the purpose of Christ in us, of this mystery, is that he's building the church. Paul proclaimed this and was making this fully known. Jesus, then, is being revealed in us to build others up. As God does this, the church benefits. And it is this, to this end that Paul labored faithfully. Ministers of the gospel labor faithfully. Let's look at verses 28 through 29. <clears throat> Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here in these two verses, Paul moves from the mystery that we find in verse 27 to the message that he is working to communicate. He proclaims Christ. And that proclamation includes a warning and a teaching. All, then, for the purpose of maturity. This is the complete gospel. You have been saved and are being saved. Christian growth comes through hearing Jesus Christ proclaimed, warning people to obey, and teaching them how to obey. The Greek here indicates that this warning is to be done gently. It is this gentle correction of, of individuals from God's word that Paul is saying he is called to do. He is called to preach Jesus and to warn others about judgment and Jesus. This is the heart of the minister of the gospel. It is one who proclaims Christ through gentle correction and teaching. It is also what makes up Christian preaching and teaching in churches today. A, a, a sermon one that we hear each and every Sunday, must have Christ in it to be Christian. That is why we are a gospel-centered church. It's because we love the gospel, and it is the gospel, Jesus Christ, that makes us Christian. It makes us a church. So if you find yourself recoiling at the idea of being corrected from God's word or from the pulpit, I would challenge you to question if that's because you don't like receiving correction, or maybe we just need to broaden our understanding of what being corrected actually means. Correction from God's word takes place when the bright light of God's word shines into our hearts, and we realize, oh, I'm not who I ought to be. And when Christ is proclaimed and his demands are pointed to us and at us, 
That is correction. We need to be careful when we find ourselves resisting what we hear on a Sunday morning or resisting when we hear God's word proclaimed. Why is that? Because a gentle correction from God's word is hard. It will be. We should not automatically discredit the speaker or the preacher when God's word is open, but we must ask the question, is that God that is looking to correct me in my heart and in my life? That should be the question that we ask. Is this God who is correcting me through his word? This was Paul's job. It was the work that he was engaged in. The ultimate goal, he says, is to present everyone mature in Christ in verse 28. That's the goal, to present everyone mature in Christ. As an apostle, Paul worked to grow up others into the image of Jesus. That was his job. That was his task. The life of a Christian is a life of growth. We never stop growing. Gospel ministry means that you are engaged in helping people grow through gentle correction and through teaching. If you find yourself as a servant of the gospel, you are participating in this. Maybe it's in your home as you teach your children. Maybe it's in the context of a discipleship group where you speak up about what is going on in your life and how you are viewing that through the framework of God's word. At some level, we are all, as Christians, participating in this. This is ministry in the church, that we help people grow. To help people grow means that we need to know that what it is that we are teaching and how to gently correct others. Not, not self-righteously correcting them, but letting God's word do the heavy lifting. Right? I don't have to convince them of anything. God needs to lay his weight on them. See, it's easy to correct people, right? We, it may be easier for some than others, uh, but it's easy. And sometimes we might actually think, yeah, I kind of enjoy that. I kind of enjoyed being right. <laughs> but what correction looks like is not having an ax to grind or, or proving a point. No, it's being clear where Scripture is clear and letting God convict. If it isn't clear, don't fill in where Scripture doesn't speak. So if you desire to participate in the ministry of this church, and many of you are already doing this, then we need to continue to create a culture where we correct and teach one another. Where in humility, we can learn from one another. Taking what we have heard and then applying it to the rest of our life. Taking what we have heard and teaching others. Ministry is knowing God's word and faithfully laboring in its application and its implication. Laboring for the maturity that we all as believers ought to desire. And so Paul aptly points out in verse 29 
It isn't because his efforts are accomplishing anything, right? But it is God who works through Paul. The suffering that he is enduring, the the proclamation that he is participating in, all requires Paul to labor, right? It's physical work. It's demanding. But through all of the hard work, it actually isn't isn't Paul doing anything. It's God. God is the one who Paul credits with all of the forward momentum. See, that's why suffering is a gift. That's why work is a gift. Our gospel ministry is a gift because it's a grace that God has given to us that we are actually able to do anything at all. This is a bold statement of humility from Paul. He, above all others, could take credit for the explosion of the gospel message in the new world, or in the, in the world. But in spite of all of his efforts, in spite of all of the work that he was doing, he takes these few verses to explain that it is actually Jesus doing all of it. It is Jesus Christ who holds all things together, and this includes the work that Paul was doing. It includes the work that you and I do. It is Jesus Christ who is not only giving giving Paul the unction for the work, but accomplishing it as well. Paul had the desire for ministry and the desire for proclamation, and it was God that actually did it. So Christian, if you desire Christian ministry, if you desire to see people grow, if you desire growth yourself, you must recognize that it isn't your intelligence, it isn't your hard work, it isn't your religious study, it isn't your anything that brings God's work in your life. From start to finish, your growth and the growth of those around you is the power of the Spirit of God who is alive and inside of them and in you. Even in these few verses, we see a wonderful contrast. It is we, in verse 28, Paul says, who present everyone mature in Christ. In verse 28, it's we. But then in verse 29, it is his energy that does all the actual work. The work of Paul is truly the work of Christ. The work of anyone engaged in Christian ministry, in discipleship, in teaching their children, in caring for their spouse, is the work of Christ. It's what God calls the ministers of the gospel to, to faithfully labor so that others can be presented mature in Christ. We can pray for fruit. We can pray for fruit in the lives of our coworkers, the lives of our children, and we ought to, uh, in the life of our spouse. Pray that they would grow and be made mature. But we must remember that when we feel like we have this moment of clarity and wisdom and say a great thing to them and they leave encouraged, it isn't actually us, but it is God working in their life that accomplishes anything. It is God who brings maturity. So take heart in that too. If you find yourself sitting here thinking, why do I not see growth in my life? 
Why do I feel like I'm still struggling with sins from 10 years ago, from five years ago? Take heart. It is God that continues to work in you. And it is in him and through him that you can find forward momentum. We, like Paul, can be confident that as we labor, God will bring growth. Because it isn't really us, but God who works through us. And that is a job well done in the church, is one that is done faithfully, recognizing that it is God who is doing the heavy lifting. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given to us all that pertains to life and godliness in your word. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would be faithful with what you have indeed given to us. That through your word proclaimed this morning, your, our lives would be changed and that we too would be made mature and be made into your image. Amen.